invite you to join me this morning in Colossians chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 21 through 23. Uh, The last time we were in Colossians, we were in a passage that we referred to as the Christ Hymn, this beautiful passage that celebrated the preeminence of Christ over all things, and that passage ended with a reference to cosmic reconciliation, that Jesus had reconciled to himself all things. Now as we transition to verse 21, that cosmic reconciliation is going to be personalized as Paul opens up and you. As he opens up and you, he does the reverse of what we often do when we share our testimonies. Paul, rather than sharing his testimony, is telling us what our testimony is. We see that in this text. And so as we prepare to go to God's Word, let us pray, asking for his blessing as we, as we explore this text and as we understand why. Paul would share our testimony with us. Let us pray. Would you bow with me? Father, as we come to your, your word, I ask for your anointing. Anointing on the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of your word. That we might fall more deeply in love with Jesus. And grow more deeply aware of our daily dependence upon him. Do this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, we gathered together at Presbytery. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with that word or what Presbytery is, it's essentially the gathering of churches in our denomination uh, in a certain region, and we gather together for a variety of purposes. Our Presbytery plants churches. Our Presbytery ordains men for gospel ministry. And so, as we gathered a, a few weeks ago for Presbytery, one of these young men who is coming before the Presbytery to, to begin his his, his journey towards ordained ministry stood before us to share his testimony. He was starting an internship process. And as this young man stood before the presbytery, he somewhat tongue-in-cheek shared with us the first time he became a Christian, and then the second time he became a Christian, and then the third time when it finally took. <laughs> it was tongue-in-cheek, but he shared his testimony in this way for a purpose. And it's a purpose that we need to deal with today. How 
How can we speak of reconciliation accomplished? Done. It honestly is a foreign concept in much of our church culture in the Bible Belt. Our church culture uh, oftentimes will point to something that we have done. Whether it be a prayer that we've prayed, an aisle that we've walked, a, a card that we have signed. Something that we have done in the past. Is, is that how you tend to think about your testimony? Sort of the equivalent to signing some document. And that document would be the equivalent to uh, signing the ticket that you purchased to get into heaven. It's as if salvation were an external event that happened in the past. Now, if that's our mindset, if that's the way we think about a testimony, then the problem becomes when we start to find ourselves straying a little too far. We're maybe wondering for a moment, was it real? Did it take? And as we wonder those things, we go and redo the event that we are trusting in. <laughs> Walking an aisle, praying a prayer, signing a card. But the text this morning points to a different salvation. A salvation that is deeper A salvation that is much more fundamental than these surface level external acts in the past. There were three verses in this text that I read for you. We have three points corresponding to those three verses. Uh, The first, beginning with verse 21, refers to the old self. An old self marked by sin the very word sin seems a little outdated for us doesn't it it's assuming a couple of things when we refer to sin we are assuming that there is uh, some authority again an outdated concept in our world today and In assuming an authority, the word sin also assumes a standard. But our relativistic world has rejected both authority and standard. So what do we do with this word sin? Well, Scripture tells us that God, the creator of the universe... The one who by the power of his word spoke all matter into being. This God is in fact an authority over us. And this God who is an authority sets the standard according to his own holiness. And when we fall short of that standard, when we reject his authority, that is sin. But when you think about sin, when you think about sin, do you think in terms of actions? Or do you think in terms of a state of being? In other words, is sin what you do? 
or is sin who you are? Scripture actually says both for the old unredeemed self. That sin is something much deeper and more dire than an act we commit. Because if it were merely what we do, then the answer would be to clean up our act. To do better, to try harder. But it's not that simple. The text tells us that we do what we do because of who we are. Verse 21 describes this for us, describing the extent of our sin problem apart from Christ using three words and, or word phrases. The first is this, you were once alienated. The old self, apart from Christ, is alienated. That is separated from God. We spoke about that last time when we spoke about the need to be reconciled to Him. The old self is, in fact, separated from God, alienated. But the verse goes on. Alienated, the old self is also hostile in mind. That means that the old self had a nature that was set against God. Much more than the actions we do. Our nature was against God. But the verse continues on. You and the old self were alienated. You were hostile in mind. Third, doing evil deeds. (laughs) We have a sin nature. We had a sin nature apart from Christ. And we act out of it. That is the sin action. What Paul is describing here is what we know of as total depravity. That sin is not merely an action that we need to stop. But apart from Christ, it is who we are. It describes our very nature. Now, you understand nature maybe in ways that you don't grasp. We live in a football-crazed part of the world. And so, maybe as we think about nature, let's talk in terms of mascots. You know, we dress up those mascots. We make them look like sweet cartoon characters. But think about the animals that we choose as mascots. They are chosen because they are fearsome. Tigers. Elephants. Maybe. Bulldogs, wildcats. The animals that we choose as mascots are chosen because they are fearsome. And when we think about a mascot, we want one that is aggressive by nature. There are no ladybugs. There are no golden retrievers. There are no bunny rabbits because those animals are gentle. They're sweet. And we don't want them representing us on the football field. Why? The mascot, we want one who is aggressive because animals act out of their nature. It's part of their genetic code, their makeup, and it's not just animals. It's you and I. People act out of their nature, but not only do people act out of their nature, we remain 
in our nature. Which begs a question. Do you believe that people can change? Do you believe people can change? This question is actually central to the gospel. It's central to this passage. So we wrestle with that question in our own mind, maybe it would be helpful for us to acknowledge that we often impose that question on others and not on ourselves. He's a cheater and he'll always be a cheater. She's a liar and she'll always be a liar. Don't we tend to believe in the possibility of change for ourselves and not for others? We doubt it with others. But what does Scripture have to say? Would it surprise you to hear me say that I actually don't believe people can change? That people will change? That may sound a little surprising to you, but what I hope you see in this text is that is actually the good news. That people can't change, people won't change, but God can and God does change. It's how we understand this radical supernatural change that is laid out for us in this passage. And we see it as there is this great contrast between verse 21 and verse 22. In verse 22 we go from the old self to the new self. Remember, I told you that Paul is telling you your testimony. You're not sharing your testimony. He's telling you what your testimony is. And this testimony is not a better you. Sometimes we hear someone trying to share their story and they talk about this movement towards a better me. Paul is not describing a better you. He is describing a new you. That the Lord God, if you are in Christ, He has now in Christ reconciled you to Himself. And Jesus did it all. He did it all. And that is central to this passage. It is central to the gospel that Christianity, it does not merely offer to us a set of moral and ethical principles to live by. It is not a system of wise sayings akin to Confucianism. It is not a philosophical worldview meant to guide our social interaction. It is, in fact, the promise of redemption and reconciliation in Jesus Christ. A redemption and reconciliation that is affected by a radical change of nature, a spiritual cleansing of sin, a new direction and desire in worship and a new life-giving relationship with the God of the universe. That is not a better you. That is a new you. And you and I would never have made that radical change apart from the work of the Holy Spirit applying to us all of the blessings of Christ. Friends, the old self, the old self was alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. But by God's grace, the new self is holy, 
and blameless and above reproach. Paul is intentionally laying these two sets of descriptions of descriptions against one another. The new self, holy, blameless, and above reproach before Him. It speaks to the totality of this change. And in speaking of the totality of this change, it points to the inseparability of regeneration, justification, and sanctification. Regeneration is this, that in Christ, you and I are given a new heart. That a death takes place to the old self. A new birth takes place for the new self. And with this new birth comes with it a radically new nature. Then, in Christ, we are forgiven. Forgiven of our sins and declared righteous in His sight. And this forgiveness and righteousness is to be received by us through Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And then finally in Christ, you and I are given the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit so that the work that He has begun will be completed in Him as we grow into Him. Friends, we don't do this. We merely embrace it. Jesus did it, we are to receive it with glad and thankful hearts. This is how Paul describes for us our testimony. But why does he do it? Why does he contrast the old self with the new self? Because he's encouraging us. He is exhorting us to experience new life in Christ. That's where we go from the old self to the new self, to the growing self. Now, as I've thought more about this text and thought more about this outline, you know, it's part of the problem of trying to meet a printing deadline. <laughs> I've uh, titled this third point, The Growing Self, but what I think is more appropriate is the persisting self. Let's read verse 23. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, the gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Some of us get to verse 23 and say, there it is. There it is. I was tracking with you. But we've gone from the great change to the great if. You thought you had me, James. But what is this if? We've got to understand this if in the context of what Paul is telling us in the gospel. Uh, Let's think about it from a couple of perspectives. First, this if... That Paul states in verse 23 is an if stated from the point of confidence. It's not if, though I doubt it. No, Paul is saying if as I'm sure you will. He is telling us if we continue, there's a tone of confidence in his 
voice. But what is this if? It may sound as if Paul is now putting before us a theology that he had accused the Galatians of. In Galatians, he accused them of subscribing to a new and different gospel where they had, been, where they had begun by the Spirit but are now being perfected by the flesh, adding to the gospel. Now, in this verse, in this passage, Paul is calling us, the Holy Spirit is calling us to persist by being who we are in Christ. Be who He has declared you to be. Now, embedded in that call to continue in the faith is very much the call to grow in holiness. To pursue truth. I do not know why, but for some reason many of us resist anything that reeks of a call to grow in holiness because we think that it is this works righteousness. But no, the Scripture is saying, grow in Christ. Christ is holy. And you become like the one whom you love. Scripture tells us that if we are in Christ, you persist in Christ by pursuing a life of holiness. To pursue truth. To study the Word. That is not meant to be a burden. It's meant to be an invitation. Do the work of studying God's Word. The God who has redeemed us has given us this Word for our blessing and benefit. Pursue truth. That is part of how we continue in faith. And these pursuits of holiness and and truth and and growth and loving kindness, they are markers of Holy Spirit-wrought gospel transformation. This call to grow in Christ, this call to persist in the gospel is not one that we should fear or resist. Because in Christ, we are given a new heart for obedience. But, I want you to also understand something fundamental about this passage. This if that is before us in verse 23 is a call to continue in the faith. If you continue in the faith. Friends, please hear this. This call to continue in the faith is not a call to perfection. It is a call to persistence. And that persistence is evidence of the transformation that has taken place. And a huge part of our persistence is our repentant heart. Have you heard the phrase, dance with the one who brought you? I suppose the phrase originated when uh, young men and women would go together to a dance. And it was a reminder, hey young lady, when you get to the dance, keep dancing with the one who brought you. Don't go looking for a better option. (laughs) It can be applied in a lot of different respects though. It's a call to not look for better options, to not switch midstream once 
you have accomplished something, once you have arrived at some destination, don't, don't go looking for greener pastures for different options. Continue on the path. But what is the path of faith? The path of faith is the path of worship and trust that is seen so clearly in our repentance. Friends, dance with the one who brought you. I once heard uh, someone make a statement about our worship when they were referring to our weekly time of confession and assurance. And this person was offended by this element of worship and and they said to someone else, don't they know that I've already done that? Don't they know that I'm already a Christian? (laughs) Maybe you've wondered the same. Maybe you've wondered why we must come back to this element of worship each and every week. Well, let me explain something. While there is a point of initial repentance and faith where our hearts are broken over the reality of our sin and and we turn from that sin and turn to Jesus Christ, that repentance is not a one-time event. It is not a ticket to heaven that we purchase by our act of repentance. Instead, repentance is meant to be a lifestyle of humble dependence. When we know this call to a lifestyle of humble dependence, we are not afraid to acknowledge our sin, to turn from our sin and live in dependence upon Christ. Friends, repentance might just be the sweetest expression of faith in Jesus Christ. Our time of confession and assurance might just be the sweetest moment in our worship. Because in this act of repentance, in this lifestyle of repentance, we are acknowledging. We're acknowledging that our Savior welcomes us and that we live in dependence upon Him. So when it calls to this, and when it comes to this call to persist in repentance, we must deal with two errors. The first is this. The first error when it comes to repentance is to reject our need for it. I've already done that. I don't need to repent of anything. But the second, which is actually related to the first is this exhausting pattern of repeatedly giving your life to Christ, hoping that it might take this time. The intern who shared his testimony before Presbytery, he was speaking for many of us. We live in a culture of surface-level gospel impact, and we must just be honest with it. We live in a culture that wants to offer a quick prayer to get a ticket and then move on with life we live in a culture of decisional conversion and many of us 
have been impacted by that culture in ways that we don't recognize because many of us have wondered if it took. So we've walked the aisle repeatedly. We've prayed the prayer repeatedly. We've signed the card repeatedly, wondering, perhaps hoping, if this time it would be real. There's a great difference between a lifestyle of repentance and repeatedly giving your life to Christ. One is me focused saying, I've got to do it right this time. One is Christ focused. Knowing, trusting that Jesus is right That He has accomplished it. And though at times my life may be shaky, I will live joyfully by faith, humbly at the foot of the cross. So for the non-Christian, the appropriate response to this message is if by the power of the Holy Spirit you are receiving this word, see your sin nature. And see it contrasted with the beauty and glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. Recognize your need and embrace that need by repenting of sin and calling on the name of Jesus. But friends, today if you are here and you are a Christian, there also is an appropriate response. And that is this, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for His life-giving work of reconciliation and then persist. Persist in relational dependence upon Him. By pursuing holiness, by pursuing truth, and by living a life of faith and repentance. This, this is how we embrace our need of Jesus and delight in Him. This, my friends, is your testimony if you are in Christ. And what Paul is doing here is telling us that our testimony is not in the past tense. Our testimony is a past event with very real, very ongoing implications. With all this talk of testimonies, I'll share with you that one of my favorite duties as an elder is when I get the chance to meet with you to hear about your testimony, your story of Jesus Christ. Recently, I had another opportunity to do just that, and a person shared with me a beautifully profound story. She shared about growing up in a culture much like ours where she had heard many messages on sin meant to condemn. She had heard occasional messages on grace meant to comfort. But what really stirred her To grow in Christ was a time in college when she found herself under a particular campus ministry and for the first time in her life she heard sin and redemption side by side. 
first time she heard sin and redemption preached side by side. Conviction and comfort in the person of Jesus Christ. It resonated with her. Because she knew the sin that she still struggled with, but for the first time, it was not presented in such a way that made her feel the need to walk the aisle again. Because set against the reality of her current sin struggle was the promise of redemption that was accomplished in Jesus. I listened to this story and I smiled. Smiled because my new friend was speaking about the gospel in a way that captured my heart and brought me back to a time when I first heard that same message. Let me long to remain in it. Friends, I still struggle with the old sin nature, I still struggle with sin but at the same time I know that I am reconciled in Christ because it is his work it was his life it was his death it was accomplished on the cross and though I am and you are a work in progress I can look back and see transformation in my life that he has worked and that he continues friends We have been and are being transformed by the grace of God. And that message of sin and redemption invites me to persist, joyfully trusting in Him, humbly living at the foot of the cross. And I hope and pray that you hear that message too. Friends, Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is is sufficient. Jesus is transformational. Persist in Him. Let us pray. Father, this gospel message is is more glorious than anything that man could contrive. And so would you, would you continue to transform us with this message Continue to draw us into relational dependence. Continue to enable us and to challenge us to persist in Christ. Do this, we pray. In His name, amen.